Welcome to the Planet Theology Podcast, the show where we keep you plugged into what is happening in all things biblical studies, theology, and Christian history. Well, hello and welcome to Planet Theology, the show where we try to keep you informed on what's happening in biblical studies, systematic theology, pastoral care, Christian ethics, psychology, you name it, we're probably into it. I'm Mike Bird. I'm a lecturer at Ridley College, and I'm joined here by my colleagues. Scott Harrower from Ridley College, lecturer in theology, history, and ethics. And Chris Porter, tutor at Ridley College, and also pastor at St. Jude's Carlton. Yes, otherwise known as the Padawan. Well, you can't win them all. (laughs) Indeed. Well, welcome. We're glad to have you with us. So welcome to Planet Theology, people. We're hoping to give you a whole wide range of theology, philosophy of religion, history, whatever's hot. We're going to be reviewing books. Talking about hot topics. Yeah, talking about the kind of stuff we talk about during coffee breaks. Exactly. What are we praying about? Stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, what are, what are we doing? Uh, what's happening this conference season? Yeah, excellent. And uh, all that sort of thing. So we hope you can join us and have a wonderful little time uh, here on Planet Theology. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that'd be terrific. But first up, uh, we're going to just talk briefly about what are each of us reading. So first of all, Scott, what are you reading these days? Well, Mike, I've just come back from two weeks in Los Angeles um, with the Templeton Foundation um, grant uh, related project on psychology and how psychology can provide helpful data for theology and philosophy. See, I told you we get psychology in there soon, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it didn't, didn't take long. So um, I'm reading books that help us um, talk about people in a way that is supported by psychological science. So, for example, in theology and philosophy, we might say persons fundamentally have an orientation to relate to others, right? We might say that. Yeah. But what... Um, science and psychological science can do is it can provide studies from babies and toddlers and kids to do with how we relate to our parents and others that support the fact that fundamentally we look for other people we seek attachments to other people and it's only when we're healthily attached to other people that we feel safe to explore the world so i've been doing two weeks of that at fuller seminary it was excellent and so there's a couple of books um, by justin um, barrett and friends that I'd recommend. Um, The first one is Justin Barrett, Cognitive Science, Religion and Theology. And he basically goes through a whole lot of studies about what it is to be a human person and what it means for God to be personal. And he backs it up with uh, psychological science. So it helps us provide richer and justified claims about who we are as people and who God um, is as a personal being. So that's what I'm reading. Okay. Awesome. Probably on a similar event, I've been reading uh, Kent Dunnington, right. uh, Addiction and Virtue, right. uh, looking at how uh, addiction uh, is really a um, disordering of the virtues. Right. Uh, so this is actually me getting into your area, Scott. Yeah, sure. Ethics, um, yeah. Theological ethics and, uh, and systematics. Mm. Um, looking, so Dunnington is basically proposing that uh, you get um, where, where you have addiction, it, it's a... It's a, ex, it's a a disordering of, of the virtue of desire, yep. um, and 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 where it's a improper ordering of the way that we are to desire God is instead 
redirected to desiring an object uh, or a, a feeling or a pleasure, pleasure or gra- gratification, some form of yeah. of uh, yeah gratification that is that is part of who we are. So that sounds um, like a very Augustinian. It is approach. a very Augustinian uh, approach to to addiction. And he's um, grounding it in science. He's grounding in in science. Yeah. So it's it's quite interesting. It's going to going to actually be a review panel at ETS. Right. Uh, so I've got a paper in looking at how. Uh, addiction is interrelated with narrative identity theory, so how we describe ourselves. Yeah. And of course, uh, with the the usual twelve step sort of programs, you mm-hmm. you start with "Hi, my name is dot dot dot. I am an addict." Yeah. And there is that that sense in which there is a, a constant form of self description within the twelve step programs, uh, which acknowledges who you are as an identity, and it really grounds who you are. Within that, and uh, I'm, my contest is that while that's exceedingly useful from a psychological point of view, I don't think it's actually particularly useful for Christians. Okay. Uh, throughout the um, throughout throughout Romans, Mike, you you've yeah. looked at this extensively. Is the the self description that uh, although we are sinners, we are uh, adopted by Christ, uh, yeah. adopted by God in Christ, that we are sons of God, uh, that we are. We are no longer enslaved to sin, mm-hmm. uh, and so even though there is this uh, body that we have come from, yeah. uh, we are redeemed for something new. Yeah. And in the twelve step program, there is not the same uh, redemption for, from to something new. Yeah, there's not a hard there's break. There's no hard break. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so um, Dunnington mentions this exceedingly briefly, like two sentences at the end, that perhaps this isn't a good idea. And so I'm expanding on that, and but. Addiction of Virtue, is a, is, I think, is a great book that really reframes how we think about addiction, um, and especially addiction in our modern world where uh, addiction doesn't necessarily look like a needle and uh, being des- destitute on the streets, Sure, uh, but we're addicted to all sorts of things. Which, it's like an eight-year-old with an iPad. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's in my yeah. world. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and especially an eight-year-old with an iPad and a, and a charger. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. Where I think this kind of work is very helpful is for us to think about being in Adam or in Christ. Mm. So if we think about the way Augustine uh, talks about pride and a self-focus and being caught up in that trap as individuals and as groups, it's a helpful way of talking about being in Adam and then moving to being in Christ. A lot of people struggle with thinking about how it is that we can be in Adam before we're Christians. Mm. And this notion of addiction and the failure to become the right kind of person to flourish according to our kind yeah. is a great way of talking about human sin. So I think there's a lot of potential there uh, for systematic theology. Yeah, I agree. Well, I'm right. reading something um, far less um, psychoanalytical. Okay. Uh, I'm currently reading David Litwa's book, um, How the Gospels Became History, Right. which is an interesting book because he wants to go back to the idea of talking about the Gospels as myth. So, you know, he says you've got a virgin birth, Jesus walks on water, at the end he kind of levitates up into heaven. He says this is basically myth. But he doesn't want to thereby say this is this is Jesus mythicism. Um, Jesus never existed, just a myth that developed up. And he, he kind of goes to town on the Jesus mythicism crew. Right. But he kind of wants to go back to the good old days of the 20th century of, you know, Boltman and, oh. and others and talking about the Gospels as myth. So we're trying to get back to some historical yeah, kernels the, around the, which the myths... Yeah, yeah, I mean, it sounds like Boltman's demythologization program. Well, yeah, but not, not quite. I'm only, I'm only a little bit into the book. And he says, look, basically the Gospels are myths that have been given a type of historical... Um, 
characterization. So you've got myth- mythology that is being historicized oh. uh, to make to make it look like it's really history. So rather than history having become, become myth, yeah, myth, it's the other way around. It's, other, it's myth that's becoming history. Right. So uh, now he, he kind of says, you know, Jesus did exist. You know, right. So he's not a Jesus mythicist. And that there was once upon a time a, a Puritan gospel scholarship, you know, particularly in the early 20th century, where the gospels were largely ateological narratives, kind of like you know we would call them in, uh, in the Marvel universe origin stories. Okay, yeah. Uh, that's probably the, the analogy. So these were kind of like origin stories with myth, mythical qualities yeah. uh, about how the Jesus movement began uh-huh. with uh, with Jesus. Yeah. So he, he's kind of wanting to go back there. And, okay. and, 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 you know, when because the big mythology thing was all about, you know, form criticism and comparisons with Greco-Roman yeah. literature and yeah. that type of thing. But then we said, you know, everyone agreed, look, the Gospels are basically um, historical biographies. Yeah, yeah. Um, you got Richard Balcom talking about the eyewitnesses. Yep. And you've got all bunch of, you know, gospel studies about the reliability of the gospels. Sure, sure. So he, he kind of wants to go back to the old, uh, the, the sort of the mythic days. Uh, so he's, so he's, he's kind of fighting a battle on two fronts. On the one hand, those who want to treat the gospels as reliable history, I mean, which I think he calls the fundamentalist approach. Right. And then the kind of Jesus mythicists, which I think he rightly characterized as angry fanatical atheists. Sure. Uh, so, so it's I'm, I'm I'm interested in what he's doing with that. Sounds like a very ambitious project. I mean, the well, it historical is. It reliability is. of the Gospels as bio. It is now at, at one level. There's there is precedent for this uh, this discussion on the way back to Justin Martyr when Justin Martyr's arguing about the virgin birth. Mm-hmm. I mean, his apologetic argument to his pagan interlocutor to say, "Well, look, you believe your myths about you know." About um you know Alexander the Great and and how he was born. Why can't you believe ours? Sure. So which is not an apologetic strategy we'd apply today, but having to deal with the issue of myths is something you do find. Or and, and, and keep in mind, myth doesn't necessarily mean fairy tale. Mm. Myth has a wide range of meaning. Right. Um, so it doesn't necessarily mean untrue or even unhistorical. Um, it, it has a slightly different uh, a slightly different function. Um, for example, so how does he use it, this guy? Uh, I, I think he, he uses things large in the terms of symbolic narratives. I'd, ha- I'd have to double check that. But it's like symbolically laden narratives. But th- this sort of approach has come into gospel scholarship a bit. Like there was one pagan author, um, I think it was um, Seleucus, said, myths are things that never happened but always are. Okay. And that's why John Dominic Crossan, in, in his book on the historical Jesus, he said, Emmaus never happened. Because Emmaus always happens. Yeah, sure. All, so you can see how that that language of myth. So uh, the, the biggest criticism I have with the book is um, I'm not too sure the gospel writers thought that they were creating myths. I thought that they see themselves as mediating a tradition that they regard as historically rooted. But probably the biggest thing I, I find wrong is um, Litwa is very good at comparing the book with Greco-Roman analogies, Greco-Roman mm. literature. Mm-hmm. But the fact of the matter is the primary um, intertext for the Gospels, for the evangelists, is the Old Testament. Yeah, no. I mean, that's what's cited and alluded to and, and um, echoed more than anything yeah, else. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, you can do your comparisons mm. with um, all sorts of, you know, Greco-Roman literature written over some 800 um, years or so, or, you know, however you want to pass it. But the fact of the matter, their primary intertext is the Jewish world, yeah. uh, the Jewish conceptions of God and God's relationship to the world and how God interacts with the world. Now, that's not to say the Greco-Roman stuff is not interesting. 
Well, it's well, interesting, but the Christians were in competition against yeah. that stuff. Uh, well, that stuff it wasn't was, a source. Yes. Well, yes and no. I mean, at some, at some points, Paul can sound very stoic in his ethics, uh, particularly in Philippians. So what we find, I think, is a mixture of appropriation and, uh, you might say, uh, differentiation from the Greco-Roman world. And I, I like what Luke Timothy Johnson says. He says, we can only understand how the New Testament or the early church was different to the Greco-Roman world yeah. unless you first understand how they are similar. So, sure, but they never used Roman God. The Christians never used Roman gods as types. Uh, no, I don't, I don't think so. I think they're operating at a, at a very deeply Jewish yeah, matrix and right. ethos. And, yeah. and we know that because if you look at the literature, they cite a lute to an echo. It's overwhelmingly yeah. rooted, but at the same time, it's not dislocated from the wider world. I mean, you've only got to go to the Logos Christology of John. Yeah. It has some indebtedness to Heraclitus and, and, and the Logos there, uh, which is then appropriated in various ways by Philo and Justin. Yeah. So I do think the primary background um, is that the Jewish world um, of you know, Hebrew Bible, the Septuagint, um, Second Temple um, uh, literature and that kind of world, but that itself is embedded and enmeshed within a Greco-Roman context. So, no, I wouldn't buy into the Gospels as, as myth, but I'm interested in someone who's trying to reopen the issue of the Gospels as a, as a type of mythic etiology that's then been gradually heuristicized, because I think this, this will be one of the issues that will, will probably come up um, in, in Gospel studies increasingly. Yeah, good one. That sounds like a really great book. Yeah. So, Mike, good news. The Trinity Without Hierarchy volume is out. Um, Huzzah. It's something we did together... I love the fact that it came out of us just chatting at morning tea yep. um, and a friendship. It's lovely to do um, projects like this that um, come out of uh, Christians working together in the vibe of friendship. So we've dedicated it to Graham Cole, um, who is a great uh, mentor of mine and a huge influence in my theology. Um, what's the main idea in the volume, mate? I think we want, we wanted to do several things. We wanted to show that evangelicals, those who define that a little bit broadly, uh, need to have a doctrine of God that is Nicene. Yeah. Okay. It is It is not an optional extra. It's not the chips and dips. To be orthodox, you need to have a Nicene doctrine of God sure. and Trinitarianism. Sure. And uh, this is something very important for any theological culture. It's yeah. the church. I know it's something near and dear to your heart. Yeah. And this is something, in many ways, though, has been a little bit eroded or questioned or challenged. And uh, it's, it's largely been driven by, of all things, debates about uh, gender roles and women in ministry, that type of thing. So it's really kind of, you know, the cart driving the horse, yeah. people wanting to find a doctrine of God that supports their doctrine of church, family, marriage, ministry, that type and, of thing. And, and in more increasingly, worship as well. Uh, and worship that as we well. we have a, a greater engagement in terms of who to worship and why do we worship a triune God. Uh, and certainly... While in the West it is it is very much a, a sense in which it is uh, those things, as you said, Mike, but in overseas and in, in Eastern cultures, uh, it's often that uh, you, you end up with an over-realized expectation of the spirit or an under-realized expectation of Jesus as human. Yeah, or a hierarchical father, yeah. a deputy Jesus, and the Holy Spirit as the force from Star Wars or something like that. 
So, I mean, so this is the sort of debate about that. And on the one hand, you've got people like Bruce Ware and Wayne Grudem and others who, who, who are arguing for a slightly more hierarchical view of the Trinity. Sure. Not an absolute hierarchy, but whether the Father is kind of um, greater. Yeah, he has uh, a greater glory sense. than the Son. And Jesus is eternally subordinated. Uh, subordinated. Uh, they're not meant to be ontologically subordinated, subordinated in role. Uh, now, I was initially sympathetic to these guys because they were not Aryan. They were not saying Jesus is a creature, he was created, and they were coming up with a way of distinguishing the Father and the Son. And I always thought it was a little bit like Karl Barth. I mean, Karl Barth used that term modes of being. You know, sure. It was in general, it's signs of Sign yeah. Okay, now Barth was not a modalist, right. but he recognized that the terminology of person was freighted either with 4th century or 20th century connotations he wanted yeah. to get from. Yeah. yeah. So when I thought these guys were talking about, you know, the son eternally subordinate, I knew subordination is an Aryan term, but I didn't think they really meant it. Yeah, right. Um, but it was then going back and reading Bruce Ware, where he does begin to talk about the father's greater glory. And it's like, actually, I come to think of it, I think he really does mean <laughs> yeah. it. And then when you read something like the blasphemy of Sermium, yeah. which strikes me as a as a perfect kind of complementarian sort of subordinated creed because it, yeah. it does it denies the eternal generation language and focuses purely on the economic relationship uh, at the neglect of the imminent relationships yeah. and, and the logic um, of those imminent relationships. There's a very strong parallel between those people. Yeah. Although, although I, should, I think there is a strong parallel, but at the same time, I would not say it's exact. No, but so, that's a very strong parallel. So, uh, so I feel like some of the um, complementarian subordinates are what I would call semi-semi-Aryans. Sure. Uh, it's probably, I think it's a more accurate way to, to put it. So, so we've put together this book uh, with some great people involved, some terrific essays um, covering the biblical stuff, you know, from the Gospel of John, Hebrews looking at church history and then at some contemporary systematic theological angles as well. I think the best thing we did was we took on the um, passages that are seen to be most strongly supporting a subordinationist yep. approach to the relationship between the Father and the Son. Um, so we overcame, um, I guess, what many would consider defeater passages mm -hmm. to like Nicene one, one, Trinitarianism. Like 1 Corinthians 15 and everything like that. Yeah, yeah. John uh, in John's Gospel as well. Um, so I think that that puts the volume in a uh, sort of a category, which is we want to be robust here. We want to overcome um, the best arguments of our opponents. Yep. Uh, we also want to think about hermeneutical issues. And then we move through the history of the doctrine and we point out that across time, the luminaries have held to a Nicene form of Trinitarianism, yep. which precludes a subordinationist stance in terms of language, um, conceptuality, and even practice. Yep, I think that's exactly right. I should also say our contributors uh, are a wide mix of people. We've got people who do identify as complementarians. That's right. Uh, contributing this. We've also got people who are Presbyterian and Southern Baptist. Yeah. So th this isn't meant to be a pile on against the complementarian tribe or against our Southern Baptist friends. This oh, is, no. This is, this is a debate, importantly, that transcends that. Sure, definitely. And it's, it's, it's trying to say that Nicene Orthodoxy is actually one of the things that should unite us, whether we're egalitarian, complementarian, yeah. Presbyterian, Baptist, where you sit on your church. So th th this, this transcends that and should ultimately be a unifying point. But yeah, it's so something that's become a little bit um, 
it's become opaque, a bit muddled, and probably for the wrong reasons. Like, if you want to be a complementarian, you can think of some good reasons to do that. Yeah. Um, but the Trinity is probably not going to be one of them. Right, definitely. Yeah. And so, the, in my mind, the best complementarians have moved uh, to draw their position from other um, yeah, like there's a theological... Yeah, like Ephesians 5 or, or something like 1 Timothy 2, where they're trying to find some traction sure. there. So we have authors from Puerto Rico to England to Australia, to America. Um, we've got men and women involved as well. Um, we have um, senior scholars. We've got some younger scholars. Yeah. It's been a great team effort, and I'm really proud of the results, Mike. Okay, who's your, who's your favorite essay, Scott? Well, I think um, I really enjoyed Adesola Akala's essay on uh, yeah. sonship, sending, and subordination in the Gospel of John, um, because that is a um, John's Gospel mm. can be read in a way, uh, to support uh, subordinationism. Um, so she uh, demonstrates why that's not the case. I thought it was a very strong essay by Adesola, and yeah. congratulations to her. Which was your favourite? I liked Madison Pierce right. on Trinity Without Taxes. Okay. Because uh, you know, 1 Corinthians 11 is one of you know the, the big debated passages where mm. you've got you know, women and head veils and everything, and, yep. uh, and sort of you know, uh, language of hierarchy yep. is used. And you can see Paul trying to, you know, negotiate, like, how do we, on the one hand, have our own ethos and culture? Yeah. But at the same time, how do we not look like a kind of, a kind of like, anarchic household? Yeah, sure. Uh, Absolutely. And he's trying to really negotiate that. And obviously, there's the theology that then comes out of that with the doctrine of God <laughs> and, and some real tricky passages like, you know, uh, you know, like Christ is the head of God and man is the head of, you know, woman in a sense. Uh, and the way he's, what he's actually arguing about, and what he actually does with that. So it's a tricky passage. It's very tricky, and Madison uh, handles it, uh, it very well. Um, I'd like to mention um, Peter Lightheart's uh, essay, "No Son, No Father: Athanasius and the Neutrality uh, of Divine Personhood." I think that's a very important essay because it demonstrates that for um, Christians, a theological reading of the Bible is necessary. And he talks about um, the kind of things that Lewis Ayres has also been speaking about recently, which is understanding the pressures across texts. Yes. Um, so uh, I think that's a very important uh, essay and very important for those who are starting off uh, in their Trinitarian studies, that Peter Lightheart essay is key to your hermeneutics. For thinking about how Nicene Orthodoxy actually functions. Yeah. And I, I mean, you've got two good essays in here, Scott. A, Thanks, bit, of a bit of a direct uh, engagement with Bruce Ware. Yes, yeah, I thought it was uh, worth unpacking uh, his hermeneutics. Yes, yeah, gr gracious but um, thorough. Mm. Uh, and then you're, and then a, a good one is talking about the the sort of the theological cultures we create because, as you point out, you know, if you if you become semi Aryan one generation, then the next generation can end up being full mm. Monty. Yeah. So you know, if you become soft on your Nicene orthodoxy mm. in yeah. one generation you can end up with a real wishy-washy doctrine of the triune God in the next. Absolutely. So I'm not concerned about the um, Christian status of um, Bruce Ware and Wayne Grudem. I think that they're Christians. I'm more concerned about their disciples yep. and where they're going to take this subordinationist theology. Exactly. So that was yeah. the idea. In but the what about you, Chris? Thing. What are all the cool kids saying about Trinity yeah. without hierarchy? Well, so I was, I was going to ask Scott... Um, Rana's rule, you know, Rana is your homeboy. Mm -hmm. um, I notice you, you have a, a longer exposition of Rana's rule, and Rana's rule is often the appeal in this, uh, in terms of the what we see in the Trinity, the economic subordination of the Son, 
uh, therefore transmutes into the, the, the eternal subordination or in, in, in the, um, into the hierarchy as a whole. What, what's your take on that? Uh, I, I know you've got a big section in, in, that, in your essays on that. And Do you want PhD, to expand on that for our PhD listeners? PhD thesis, I well, PhD as well. on Rana, but uh, exposition on Rana's rule and the and uh, the hierarchy or the implicit hierarchy. Sure. So um, Karl Rana was a um, well-known 20th century theologian, very significant in Vatican II, and his big idea with the Trinity was that the relations that we see between the Father, Son, and Spirit in salvation history is mirrored in who God is in eternity, and so. A lot of people have taken a strict reading to that, and that's kind of the Grudem Ware camp. Others have taken a semi-realist reading, um, which is to say that, yes, we see that in salvation history, the Son is subordinate um, to the Father and is also subordinate to the Spirit. However, what we need to take account of is the fact that the incarnate Son is behaving in particular ways because he must fulfill a particular messianic vocation which demonstrates his faithfulness to the Father as the the true human being and the true representative of Israel. For, so for historical economic reasons to do with the promises and the covenants that God has made, Jesus is subordinate to the Father and the Spirit, but that does not reflect the way that one God is in res- with respect to the Trinitarian persons in eternity. There are historical burdens that mean that we can't merely read the relations between Father, Son, and Spirit in history into the relations in eternity. So that's my take on Rana's rule. It's no. a, um, it's not the strict realist reading. It's a moderate, moderate well, reading. Well, I think that then comes back to the, to the reading of John five. Go um, on. So if John five is often read as that uh, as a subordination of Jesus to, to the Father in an eternal sense and. I think well, father, father sent the son. Father sent, father repeated, sent the son. Father sent the son. Father sent the son. All throughout the, uh, the fourth gospel, mm. but I, I think actually you're right. There, there is this very temporal sense in in that mission, yeah. Um, where where that is, uh, and you, and then you have the high priestly prayer of John 17, which really emphasizes that this is only this is going to be a status of of Christian believers of the disciples that Jesus leaves behind. Um, and as he goes to prepare a place, there is a new relationship which is being formed. Yeah, um, definitely. So yeah. And also, you know, there are other logical issues. So, for example, if we take the sending of the Son to talk about some kind of inner Trinitarian uh, relation, well, what does the ascension mean? Uh, what does it mean that Jesus is subordinate to the Spirit during his earthly ministry, but then he sends the Spirit? I mean, what are you going to do with that? Well, yeah, so do we need Trinity without hierarchy part two? Uh, <laughs> the hierarchy of the of the Father and the Son seeing the Spirit. Absolutely. I mean, this, well, that's yeah. his PhD thesis. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, the advantage of Rana's rule, it goes to show that God, as he appears in the in the economy of redemption, yeah. uh, that God is not different to that. Right. That, so that, 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 that is, uh, someone once said, God is at least as nice as Jesus. Right. So that's the epistemological approach to the Trinity and the use of Rana's rule. That is, we look at the economy of salvation, we can see that God is three persons. So, and this is where Torrance would say there is no God behind Jesus. Yeah, yeah sure. Okay, which, which is, I think, and, and I think Torrance and Barton in his own way was sort of, you know, uh, into this. I think that's the advantage of it. That, 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 as you point out, though, it does break down yeah. when you apply things like the Holy Spirit. Uh, I think it's Fred Sanders who came up with a good little adage. He said, why the economic trinity is the imminent trinity. So, God 
as he appears in, in the economy of redemption with the Son and the Spirit. Well, that is the imminent trinity. Not everything in the imminent trinity is the economic trinity. Right, and not everything in the economic trinity is the imminent, is in the imminent trinity, right? Such as subordination. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he, he Fred uses the language of icon. Yep. So I like that. Like, we see, um, in a sense, an icon of God in, it, in salvation history, but that doesn't tell us everything we need to know about yeah. God in eternity. Yeah, Fred Sanders' work's very helpful. Um, so it's one of the key issues in Trinitarian theology. I'm teaching a Trinity class this semester, and Rana's rule is one of the most important um, discussions that we'll have. So I've got a question for you, Mike. Yes. Uh, your favourite footballer uh, has more recently uh, come, come forward saying that he does not see the Trinity as a Christian doctrine. What does this uh, book Who's say? Who's this? Uh, Izzy Falau. Uh, Doesn't believe Izzy in Falau the Trinity. Has, um, I've seen him we can be more, more, this out, but. more muddled on the Trinity. Yeah. So, so where, what does this what does this book offer offer us for being able to to negotiate the the place of the Trinity within Christian thought and Christian belief? Well, um, I mean, the first of all, I would not give this book to Israel Falau. I think it's above his pay grade. Mm. Uh, I'd probably give him a, a maybe a little bit basic Christian, like a J.O. Packer's Knowing God. Sure. I think would probably be a little bit. Well, even uh, you know, um, Fred Sanders has some good work on the Trinity where he talks about. Most Christians are implicit Trinitarians. Mm. They they worship the Father, they know the Son, they believe uh, Jesus is Son incarnate, and they experience the power of the Spirit in the uh, context of the church. So most Christians are implicit Trinitarians. It's just when you think about it and when you try to work out a well-rounded doctrine, you need to do so with the help of the tradition and other good people who've been reflecting on these things for a long time. So you just don't squirrel up in your own bedroom and... Uh, try to work out your own Trinitarian doctrine. Yeah. But, I mean, all of our churches can be de facto Unitarian, with God the Father, Jesus his deputy, and the force from Star Wars. One of the most terrifying things happened to me when I first began lecturing is I started talking to some students about the Trinity. Yeah. And one student said, I didn't think we believed that Catholic stuff. Whoa. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's okay. Kind of, now, his logic was impeccable. Yeah. Catholics believe in the Trinity. <laughs> One, premise two, Catholics are bad people. Okay, we don't believe wow. in the Trinity. Wow. Wow. But yeah, you know, a whole bunch of Catholic things are called Trinity Catholic Church or something right. like that. I said, uh, yeah, we do, bro. And this is kind of a big deal. It kind right? of is a big this deal. This isn't kind of like, you know, indulgences. It's, it's not up there with indulgences and, and you know, Mary uh, Mary's Immaculate Conception. Right. Now, this actually is something we do have. Absolutely. Um, can, I, can I give you a story from the other side of the fence, which is my experience with Lutherans? Um, I was a pastor of a church where I noticed that during songs, often one family would sit down. So I, after being there for a while, I spoke to the family, I said, what's going on? Well, it turned out they were Unitarians. And if we ever sung a song that referred to Jesus or the Spirit in a way that could be understood as implying a divine identity or that they belonged to the divine identity, they would sit down because they thought that Jesus was only the Messiah sent by God. So I said, well, you know, um, we're Trinitarians here. He was an ex-Lutheran pastor who, in trying to understand the Trinity, couldn't. So he, you know, uh, with integrity, stepped down. So I said to him, look, um, I understand uh, that we believe very different things, but for the sake of your kids, um, would they stay in our church? So anyway, so the parents ended up leaving, went to a um, Christadelphian church in the end. 
but fortunately the kids stayed and they were mentored and and kind of raised within our church as trinitarian christians okay so yeah but that was quite a stark experience trinity sunday would be a funny day in the family household (laughs) Uh, well and and perhaps we we need better teaching on the trinity for trinity sunday uh given that my experience growing up was fairly modalist every Uh, sunday should be trinity that's awesome that's one way to fix the problem that's awesome rather than the normal sermons like you know 12 biblical tax shelters Five ways to be a more godly pet owner. Yeah, right. You know, maybe we should bring a bit of Trinitarian theology to our preaching even. Yeah, or do what the prayer book does and just infuse the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that is the best way forward, yeah. um, is to know that we, we love the Father in Christ through the power of the Spirit. But it's pretty hard when you're singing the latest Hillsong tunes, which is, you know, Jesus, you're terrific for you. I'd I swim know, the Pacific. Yeah, I baby, know. yeah, baby, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, which is on the highbrow end, I should say. As well. <laughs> um, Perhaps on the highbrow end is is Hillsong's rendition of the Nicene Creed. Yeah, I think so that, that was that, excellent. That was a great no, no, Apostles they, they Creed. Apostles, so Apostles Creed. Apostles Creed. Yeah, you know, that is good. That is good. And uh, I've told them the next the next challenge. There was a very good song about the Apostles' Creed, and you're going to get them to do the Athanasian Creed, eh? No, no, I want I want them to do the to do the um, Second Helvetic Confession. Oh, jeez! Then <laughs> you stick that to music, then I'll be in. Apostles' Creed to music, oh, it's easy. Been but done you, before. your point's right, though, is that um, popular Christian music needs to be Trinitarian, mm-hmm. and uh, not just to focus either on God's attributes, like you're faithful, you're faithful, you're faithful, or just uh, one person within the Godhead. Exactly. Good yeah. point, Mike. So I'm looking forward to some Christian music from you. Um, yes, that's yes. going to be uh, the I'm next project. I'm planning on bringing on my own rap album. Oh, um, fantastic! And followed by Trinity the Musical. Uh, no, actually, well, actually Mikey want, B. I actually want to. I actually want to write a musical about Athanasius. Yeah, right. And you're being serious right now. Ath- well, semi-serious. Uh, you're wearing serious face. Semi-serious. Which kind of worries me. For, for, for those <laughs> who are listening, this is the same face that Mike had when he said he was semi-serious about writing a book about a theological college. Yes. Right, yes, yes. okay. Which he then did. Yeah, right. The Divinity School, about a redhead professor who's abused by his colleagues, so he fakes his death and then systematically gets revenge on each one of them. Oh, for example, That's too close to the truth. To the Old Testament lecturer who used to constantly give him wedgies, <laughs> he gets strangled with his own underpants. Oh my! That's no, actually, dark. I, I do. I do that's have a, so dark. No, I do have a novel about a divinity school, but it's nothing like I've just described. No it's, wedgies. It's uh, no wedgies. No wedgies. <laughs> but it's very. It's 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 got comedy and drama. It's like the West Wing at seminary. Okay. If Worth we, reading. If we, it, yeah. on, the, on the other hand, if you are at ETS or SBL and you do want to hear the alternate version of the theological <laughs> school, come and talk to Mike anytime <laughs> after 10 p.m. Yes, yes, indeed. So that brings us to the end of the first episode of Planet Number Theology. one. Number one. Uh, if you can, if you can help us out, uh, leave a comment. Nice. Like us. Like it. Share. share. Tell your mama, yep. your grandma about it. And uh, I think we should have an Instagram page yes. where you may be able to take, uh, see photos of us or even nice. short videos recording all this. So you can yep. always go there. Details to follow. So having discussed the Trinity today and the fact that we're recording on the day that remembers Mary Magdalene, we have a lovely Trinitarian prayer uh, that remembers God's wonderful work in her life. Here we go. It's from the prayer book. Almighty God, whose son called Mary Magdalene to be a witness of his resurrection, mercifully grant that by your grace we may be forgiven and healed. 
and may know you in the power of your Son's risen life, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, now and forever. Amen. You've been listening to Planet Theology. Planet Theology is Mike Bird, Scott Harrower, and me, Chris Porter. Our theme music is Finger Lickin' by Harriet Harbingers. We hope you've had a great time. And if you've enjoyed what you've been listening to, please like us and rate us on your local podcast app. See you next time.